You remember with Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the Hebrew kingdom split. The northern ten tribes formed the nation called Israel, whereas the southern two tribes took the name of the more prominent tribe, Judah. This period was called the divided kingdom. It lasted for 350 years. And during this time, 20 kings ruled over Judah. Only eight of those 20 were righteous kings, kings that pleased God. Israel fared far worse. 19 kings reigned over Israel, and they were all skunks. Stunk to high heaven. 19 were all idolaters. And God's judgment came upon Israel as a consequence about 130 years before it fell on Judah. God was patient with both peoples, both kingdoms. And God's patience, though, has limits. Eventually, sin must be judged. Judgment day occurs for all men. For Israel, judgment came at the hand of the Assyrians. In 722 B.C., Israel's capital of Samaria was sacked. And the northern ten tribes were scattered. We studied last week how God delivered King Hezekiah and the southern kingdom of Judah from Assyria. For Judah, God's instrument of judgment was to be the Babylonians. And Judah first felt their fury in 605 B.C. In that year, the Babylonians took the Jews captive. The first wave, the first deportation back to Babylon. They would be deported to Babylon in actually three waves, in 605, in 597, and then in 586 B.C., the final blow coming in the summer of 586 when Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed. Tonight we're going to look at the last half century and the last five kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. You're going to leave one hour older and 55 years wiser tonight. Chapters 22 and 23 begin by describing the reign of one of Judah's very best kings, a king named Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Imagine that, eight years old. Fruit loops for everyone. (laughs) Must have been his first decree. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bosketh. Now, who helped Josiah in his early years, we're not told. But it may have been Hilkiah the priest, and this is interesting. Because Hilkiah was probably the father of one of Josiah's contemporaries, a prophet named Jeremiah. Isn't it interesting that perhaps Josiah and Jeremiah grew up together? They were childhood buddies. They kind of grew up, came through the ranks together. Well, this King Josiah, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in all the ways of his father David. And notice this, he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. There was no wobble to his walk. No toying with temptation. No flirting with sin. He was fixed on God's best. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 2, it tells us in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, notice that, while he was still young, he began to seek God, the God of his father David. In other words, 16 years old was the turning point in his life. You know, my son is about to turn 16. It's interesting, Josiah got serious about following God when he turned 16. Oh, the headaches and the heartaches we can avoid by giving God our whole heart at a young age. Why wait until you're 30 to follow God? Once you've wasted the best years of your life and you're giving just half a life to God, why not start at 16? Why not give to God a whole life for Him to use for His glory? I like this. While he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Well, a monumental event took place in Josiah's 18th year. It shaped his life forever. Now, it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah 
that the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work, who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house to carpenters and builders and masons and to buy timber in hewn stone to repair the house. However, there need be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. Now the temple was under restoration. Josiah was basically trying to fumigate the place. He was trying to get rid of the evil stench and stains that had been caused by the years of King Manasseh's idolatry. Can you imagine how trashy the temple had to have gotten? In the midst of all of that idolatry and perversion and all the lewdness and wickedness that was going on in the temple. Josiah's thought was, hey, let's just fumigate the place. Let's just renovate the whole temple. And Josiah here sends a delegation to the high priest Hilkiah to check on the work. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. This was an incredible discovery. You see, Manasseh, that wicked king, had ordered the destruction of the copies of the law. There were priests, believe it or not, who had never read or even seen the law of God. Some folks feared that it had been lost forever. But during the repairs on the temple, there in some dark cobweb corner under a mound of debris, Hilkiah found it. He found a copy of the sacred scriptures. Reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. This book you hold in your hand is indestructible. Over and over through the centuries, God has assured time and again the survival of His Word. And Manasseh was not the only heretical ruler who tried to stamp out the Bible. In 303 AD, the Roman emperor Diocletian, a fierce opponent of Christianity, he too ordered the destruction of all Bibles. Not only did his decree prove unsuccessful, but his successor, Constantine, converted to Christianity, and he used the money that had been collected during the reign of Diocletian to commission 50 new copies of the Scriptures. Talk about God turning the tables. It's been said the Bible is an anvil that has broken many hammers. God not only oversaw the Bible's inspiration, but He has also overseen its preservation. Well, Jeremiah also mentioned the rediscovery of the law. And he described the impact that it had on him personally. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, there the prophet says to the Lord, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Oh my, when a starving soul feeds on Scripture, joy and rejoicing is always the result. When Martin Luther picked up his Bible in Erfurt, Germany, and he began to read it for himself, the light of fire in his heart that eventually burned across a continent. Spiritual revival always begins with the rediscovery of the Word of God. Well, Hilkiah, he gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. And so Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe, he pulled it out, and he handed it over, and he showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Imagine, for the very first time, this king learns of God's will for his people. Don't you know Josiah hung on every single word? Verse 11 tells us, And it happened. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, that he tore his clothes. Why? Because for the first time, Josiah realized 
how far short the people had come from living up to the demands of the law and how near they were to God's judgment. The light of God's word had uncovered the nation's sin. Well, then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Achbor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter. Now as a side note, it's always interesting to notice the popularity of names. And we have quite a few names mentioned in these verses. It's always interesting to note what names are hot and what names are not. Did you know that the most popular names for babies in America in 2006 were Jacob for a boy and Emily for a girl? In 1986, 20 years ago, it was Michael and Jessica. In 1966, it was Michael and Lisa. In 1946, it was James and Mary. In 1926, it was Robert and Mary. And in 1906, it was John and Mary. Mary's kind of holding her own there, isn't she? (laughs) Apparently, in Judah in 620 B.C., animal names were in fashion. It was kind of hot to name your kid after an animal, evidently. For here, Shaphan means rock badger. Akbor means mouse. I would not want to name my son Akbor. Hey, little mouse. And then Hulda. Can you imagine naming your daughter Hulda? That means weasel. (laughs) Well, they spoke with the weasel. Hulda the weasel. They spoke with her. And just as God does every Sunday at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, God speaks through the mouth of a weasel. (laughs) Then she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants. All the words of the book which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I had spoken against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And because you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you says the Lord. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. And so they brought word to the king. In other words, the nation had gone too far to be spared God's judgment. The warnings will come to pass, but because King Josiah had had a tender heart toward God and had humbled himself and had repented of his own sin and the sin of the nation, judgment will not come in his day. He will be spared in his lifetime. He will die in peace. Well, in chapter 23, Josiah, he follows through on his repentance. This man, this is what made him such a great king. He was not just a hearer of God's word, he was a doer. He institutes sweeping reforms throughout Judah. Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great, 
And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. The first step that Josiah takes is to arrange a public reading of the scriptures. And notice the king himself reads God's law. I like that. Imagine this now. The king reads from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Joshua reads the words of God to the people of God, to Judah and to Jerusalem. It was an incredible moment. And Josiah knew firsthand the power of God's word. Remember, when it initially hit him, it melted his heart. It brought him to his knees. It prompted his action. He knows that he is unleashing a lion on the people of Judah. The word of God is going to have an impact upon them. Well, then the king stood by a pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. They all agreed to serve the Lord together. No other king instituted as far-reaching a set of reforms as did Josiah. Now I want you to notice four steps to what we call revival. To a rekindling, a reigniting of God's fire in people's hearts. Notice the four steps that happens here. First, there is a rediscovery of God's word. This is always the first step to revival. A rediscovery of God's word. Second, there's a repentance. We respond. Look at how far short we've fallen. Lord, we need to turn. Third, there's a recommitment. And then fourth, and this is what we're about to see, there's a reformation. See, reformation is the reordering of society in light of the Scriptures. Reformation in our lives is the reordering of our lives in light of Scripture. And that's what Josiah begins to do. And the first place that Josiah institutes his reforms is in the house of God, in the temple. Reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. There, we're told, for the time has come for judgment to begin. Where? In the world? Not first. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. That's where the judgment needs to begin. Before we attempt to clean up society, we first need to clean up our own act. We need to seek purity within the church. Verse 4 And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, the priests of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all of the articles that were made for Baal, for Asherah, the fertility goddess, and for all of the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And it's amazing that there were traces of these idols. There were Articles and implements associated with the idols still left in the temple. Immediately he tells them, let's get any trace of idolatry. It needs to be incinerated. It needs to be burned. And then he removed the idolatrous priests from the kings of Judah, whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem. And those who burn incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, and to all the host of heaven. Notice, Josiah not only got rid of sinful things, but sinful people. This is important. So what if you just get rid of the practice and don't get rid of the perpetrator? Eventually, the wicked person will restart the wickedness. Josiah fires all of these pagan priests. And he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem, burned it at the brook Kidron and ground it to ashes and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. And then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. You guys that have been with us to Jerusalem, you know that the brook Kidron separates the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. And you know what's, ha- what's all right up the Mount of Olives? You have all those graves, all of those tombs. And so he burns the wooden image there in the Kidron Brook, and then he takes the ashes and he throws them up the side of the Mount of Olives onto the graves of the common people. And then he tore down these ritual booths. You see, Judah had worshipped 
the fertility goddess Azura. Their priest raised funds through sacred prostitution. This was how they operated, these pagan fertility cults. And so these ritual booths were probably the equivalent of a brothel that had been set up right there in the temple. Can you imagine? Josiah quickly gets rid of all of this perversion. And he brought all of the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. Also, he broke down the high places at the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. And this was the first sign that Josiah's reforms hadn't produced the revival that he wanted. You see, God hated these high places because they took people away from the temple in Jerusalem. And these priests, they accept the destruction of their high places, but they don't really grasp God's intent. They never go down to the temple themselves to worship God where He desires to be worshipped and how He desires to be worshipped. And so you get the sense that Josiah was making these changes, but the people weren't understanding the intent behind them and, and weren't moving in the spirit of what he was trying to accomplish. He defiled Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech. The valley of Hinnom today is so deceiving. It's really a beautiful place. It's on the west side of the old city of Jerusalem. Today there's a lush green valley in the valley of Hinnom. There's actually an outdoor theater there. The city hosts over a hundred concerts a year in the valley of Hinnom. But in Josiah's day, the stench of human flesh, burning human flesh, rose from this valley. For it's where the worshipers of Molech sacrificed their infants to their evil idol. Josiah shut this down. In fact, the word tophet comes from toff or drum. And this was a reference to the drums you know, that the pagan priests played to drown out the sounds of the screaming children as they burned in the arms of this this brazen idol that they worshipped. Verse 11, Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. You know, the Egyptians, they envisioned the sun riding through the sky in a chariot drawn by horses. Evidently, Manasseh had adopted the Egyptian worship of Ra, the sun god. And here it even set up these horses right outside of the temple compound. Can you imagine? Josiah quickly, he, he obliterates these things and gets rid of them. And then the altars that were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts, the king broke down and pulverized there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. In a holy rage, King Josiah pulverizes these altars to dust. But again, as I read through this, I can't get away from the fact of how, how idolatry had permeated Jerusalem into the temple on the hills. Everywhere there were idols. This is why God said, you know, I can't, I can't withdraw my judgment. You know, for your sake, Josiah, I'll let you die in peace, but judgment has to come upon these people. Well, then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. Solomon sinned in his later years by marrying pagan wives and then tolerating their idolatry. And tragically, these idols had been left standing east of Jerusalem on what was called the Mount of Corruption. It was actually the southern end of the Mount of Olives. They had been left standing there for 350 years since Solomon, the hill, gained this infamous name, 
the Mount of Corruption. It's amazing that throughout their history, only Josiah was the king that would tear down these idols. How the others allowed them to stand, who knows. And he broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and filled their places with the bones of men. Human bones desecrated an altar and thus desecrated these idols. Well, moreover, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made both that altar and the high place he broke down and he burned the high place and crushed it to powder and burned the wooden image. Notice Josiah's reforms reach even to the northern kingdom. He takes his reformation on the road. He goes north to Bethel and he finds the altar of the golden calf that Jeroboam had erected there in Bethel that had been the nemesis of the northern kingdom. And there he oversees its complete annihilation. As he, Josiah turned, he saw the tombs that were there on the mountain. And he sent and he took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord which the man of God proclaimed who proclaimed these words. Again, burning bones on an altar was a universal act of desecration. And thus this was Josiah's way of blotting out the sacredness of the idolatrous sites. Now notice verse 16 references a prophecy. And if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 2, 300 years earlier, a nameless prophet at the time of Jeroboam pronounced a judgment on the evils of Jeroboam's sin. Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. But that nameless prophet, he said this, Thus says the Lord, Behold a child. Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And here is an amazing validation of the truthfulness of Scripture. For now 300 years after the fact, that nameless prophet's words come true, a child named Josiah, comes to Jeroboam's altar and burns those bones on the altar and desecrates that altar that had caused Israel so much pain and so much heartache. Amazing prophecy. 300 years before the fact, Josiah is mentioned by name. Verse 17. Then he said, What gravestone is this that I see? And so the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, let him alone, let no one move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Now Josiah also took away all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord to anger. And he did to them according to all the deeds that he had done in Bethel. He executed all of the priests of the high places who were there, on the altars, and burned men's bones on them, and he returned to Jerusalem. And in verse 21, Josiah reinstitutes the Passover. Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. Such a Passover had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And this shows just how far the Hebrews had strayed from God's law. Can you imagine? Not since the days of the judges. Oh, you could date that around 1060 B.C. Not since 1060 B.C. And we're sitting here talking now about 0620-625 B.C. So we're talking 400 years. It had been 400 years since the Passover had been observed by the Hebrews. Wow. That's over four centuries of neglect and disobedience. This is why God said, I have no choice but to judge them for their sin. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was held before the Lord in Jerusalem. And what a holy night it must have been. 
after four centuries to obey the law once more and to celebrate Passover with your family. Oh, how this must have pleased God. How he must have been pleased with his people this night. Well, moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists. In other words, he banished the palm readers and the astrologers and the occultists and the New Age channelers. Josiah cracked all the crystal balls and burned all the tarot cards, got rid of all of, all of the creeps and their creepy things. And then he also eliminated the household gods and idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might perform the words of the Lord which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Oh, thank the Lord that Hilkiah found that book. You know, I look back on my life and I'm so thankful that I found this book. Because who knows what perversions, who knows what practices I might have gotten into myself. Who knows how far I would have drifted from God if it had not been for discovering this book. Aren't we thankful for this book? Verse 25. Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Not after him did any arise like him. Josiah never killed a lion, never slew a giant, never made an axe head float, never caused it to rain, never killed a Philistine. Yet Josiah fought spiritual wickedness in high places, and he loved God with everything he had. To me, King Josiah was one of the great unsung heroes of the Old Testament. Well, nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of His great wrath with which he, His anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked Him. Notice, even the good King Josiah, even all that he accomplished, couldn't override the evil that Manasseh had done. This Manasseh, oh my. Manasseh made a mess of things. Because of him, Judah will still be judged. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. You know, it's interesting. Just four years after Josiah dies, the Babylonians begin to oppress Judah. God's judgment does come. We'll see that despite Josiah's reformation, the people never really turn from their wickedness. You see, from Josiah's life, we really learn an important lesson. That there is a difference between revival and reformation. You see, just because a society experiences an outward, even political reformation, that doesn't mean that there has been an inward and spiritual revival. Josiah is proof of this. God transformed the man Josiah. And he made all of these righteous changes. But you see, real revival can't be legislated. It never arises from the top down. You can't write new laws and create a revival. You can write new laws all day long. But until God writes his law on people's hearts, nothing really changes. There is a time and a place for Christians to be politically active. Believe me, you know, I'm a firm, I have firm convictions about that. But at the same time, we can't be deluded into thinking that revival can come strictly by political means. It never happens that way. Revival takes a work of God. Revival happens from the inside out, from the heart, from the bottom up. The change that occurred in Josiah, sadly, never got to the people. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And we're told how he dies. At the time, the world was headed for a strategic, climactic battle. It was 609 B.C. And the Babylonians and Medes, who were, you know, a coalition... They were threatening the Assyrian Empire. And so the two sides, the Babylonians and the Medes and the Assyrians, they squared off at a town 
on the Euphrates River known as Carchemish. Very important town in history. This was a very important battle. Now Egypt decided to side with the Assyrians. They were worried about the Babylonians. And so Egypt started heading north to fight with the Assyrians. Josiah, though, wanted to court favor of the Babylonians. And so to help the Babylonians, he goes out to stop Egypt from getting to Carchemish. And verse 29 tells us what happened. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went to the aid of the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And King Josiah went against him. And Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo when he confronted him. Notice Josiah fell on the world's most famous battlefield, the Valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, where the last battle will be fought or be staged. And then his servants moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo, brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Here's the moral to the story. Don't get into another person's fight. That's what Josiah did and it cost him his life. He decided to meddle in these international politics. He decided to befriend Babylon and you know, try to scratch Babylon's back by going out and stopping Egypt. He got in the middle of somebody else's fight. God never told him to go. And as a consequence, Josiah dies. He loses his life. Josiah died in 609 B.C. The battle of Carchemish was decided in 6 I'm sorry, in 609 BC, the battle of Carchemish was decided in 605 BC. And it was at Carchemish that the Assyrians and the Egyptians fell to the Babylonians. The mantle basically was passed and Babylon after Carchemish became the world superpower. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, began to dominate the world. Well, needless to say, after his defeat at Carchemish, Pharaoh Necho wasn't in a very happy mood as he travels back from Carchemish back down to Egypt. He passes through Judah. And because he doesn't like Josiah's son Jehoahaz, as he passes through Judah, he takes Jehoahaz and he has him imprisoned. And he places his brother Jehoiakim on the throne. Verse 31. Now Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king. And he reigned just three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Now Pharaoh Necho put him in prison at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he imposed on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of his father Josiah, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh took Jehoahaz and went to Egypt, and he died there. Jehoiakim now serves as a vassal to Egypt. He's a yes man to the Pharaoh. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. This was blackmail. The, the Egyptians were blackmailing the Judeans. And Jehoiakim, he basically taxes Judah to buy off, to pay off Egypt. Well, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebudah, the daughter of Pediah of Rumah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And Jehoiakim becomes Jeremiah's most bitter enemy. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 36, the king takes a knife and he cuts up the scroll that Jeremiah sends him that contains the word of God. Imagine a guy that evil, that he takes a knife and he literally cuts up a Bible. That's what Jehoiakim does. And then he cuts it up and then he throws it in the fireplace and he burns up the word of God. This evil dude even tried to have Jeremiah arrested and murdered. Jehoiakim and Jeremiah became bitter enemies. Now as I mentioned, the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians at Carchemish in 605 B.C. 
and fresh off the heels of their victory, they want to flex their muscle. There's more worlds to conquer. And so their army moves south. And guess who is south? The nation Judah. And so they move against Judah, and Jehoiakim surrenders without a fight. Understand, the Babylonians had a different policy toward conquered people than did the Assyrians. You remember what the Assyrians did to their defeated foes? They scattered them. They scattered them out. among. They displaced them among other conquered lands. But the Babylonians had a different strategy. They would take the people that they had captured and they would bring them back to Babylon to live there in exile. This is the year 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar has moved into Judah. Jehoiakim has surrendered without a fight. And the first wave of Judeans, Jews, are taken back to Babylon in the first deportation. In 605 B.C., you'll recognize some of these names, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael were their Hebrew names. They were among those that were first taken back to Babylon. And they were made servants in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. It's interesting, Warren Wearsby, he writes this. If the Jews wanted to live like the idolaters, let them live with the idolaters. That was basically God's verdict. And Judah will remain in exile in Babylon for 70 years before God will allow them to return to the land. It will take a captivity to turn them from their idolatry. Chapter 24 begins, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. What happened historically? Nebuchadnezzar's father died, so he had to return to Babylon. King Jehoiakim decided in Nebuchadnezzar's absence to rebel against him. This was against wise counsel, of course. Jeremiah warned the Jews to surrender to the Babylonians. The Babylonians were God's instrument of judgment, and to surrender to the Babylonians was to submit to God. This is why the Jews accused Jeremiah of treason. And here Jehoiakim says, oh no, we're going to rebel against the Babylonians. Bad move. For the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans and bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites and bands of the people of Ammon. This was the coalition that had been formed by the Babylonians. He sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Again, the flashpoint for God's fury and God's wrath were the sins of this evil king, Manasseh. Verse 5. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim rested with his fathers. Then Jehoiakim, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come out of his land anymore, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. In 601 B.C., Egypt made one last attempt to try to stop the Babylonian army. It failed, and Egypt began to fade as Babylon continued to gain strength. Well, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta. Remember the Nehushtan? The bronze serpent that they turned into an idol? Evidently, she was named after that bronze serpent. The daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. His name here is Jehoiakim. Jeremiah called him Coniah. Sometimes he's called Jeconiah, but Jeremiah liked to call him Coniah. I like to call him Coniah the Barbarian. Because he was an evil guy. Verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. The year 597 B.C. 
And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord as the Lord had said. You remember the Babylonians. They recalled those treasures that Hezekiah showed them when he took them on that little tour. You remember that? They remembered those treasures and now they come back to take them. Notice too. They take temple treasures. We'll get there uh, eventually. But flash ahead to Daniel chapter 5. Several years later, a Babylonian king, one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors, a guy named, by the name of Belshazzar, he's hosting a party. It's really a drunken orgy. And in the midst of it, he gets real proud and real haughty. And he wants to proclaim himself greater than the God of the Jews, Jehovah God. And so he goes and he takes out these same stolen treasures, takes them out of the treasuries of Babylon. And he uses the holy vessels of God to drink his wine and to make his party. Belshazzar does it to mock the God of Judah. And at that moment, the moment they tip their glasses, the articles of the temple, all of a sudden... Mysterious handwriting appears on the wall. God judges Babylon that very night. That night, the Persians are camped outside their city. They dam up the Euphrates River and they invade the city, what was thought to be an impregnable city. They invade it by coming in under the walls. And that very night, Babylon falls to the Medes and the Persians because of the haughtiness of Belshazzar. And he goes back to these Temple vessels that were taken and stolen in 597 B.C. Well, Nebuchadnezzar carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. And among these exiles, the prophet Ezekiel was also taken to Babel. None remained except the poorest of the land. And he carried Jehoiakim captive to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives... His officers and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000 and craftsmen and smiths and probably some Joneses and Johnsons too. 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war. These the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. Babylon gutted Judah of its wealth and its skill and its leadership. Well, then the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He would be the last of Judah's kings. His mother's name was Hamultal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He also did evil. In the sight of the Lord, according to Jehoiakim, had done. Zedekiah was the king who had the prophet Jeremiah flogged and placed in the stocks and tortured. He also had Jeremiah thrown into the miry pit. You know, when he was thrown down into the mud and left to die. Verse 20. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, that he finally cast them out from his presence then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And this is when Nebuchadnezzar says, enough is enough. He launches a third and final assault against Jerusalem. Chapter 25 describes the ominous event, the fall of Jerusalem in the summer of 586 B.C. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month and on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. The city of Jerusalem, to its credit, was so well fortified that it took Nebuchadnezzar a year and a half to breach the walls. 
And during the siege, the conditions inside the city became desperate. Read Lamentations chapter 2, verse 20. There it recalls the rampant starvation. It got so bad that women were considering eating their own babies in an attempt to survive. That's how desperate it was within the walls of Jerusalem. Then the city wall was broken through. And according to Ezekiel 24, you might read that later tonight. Back in Babylon, among the exiles, Ezekiel's wife died the very same day that Jerusalem fell to Babylon. It was God's way of illustrating the death of His beloved bride, the people of Israel, the people of Judah. And all the men of war fled at night by way of the gate between two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city, and the king went by way of the plain. Everyone tries to escape. The Babylonians, though, have Jerusalem surrounded. And so the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon in Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. And verse 7 recounts the awful punishment the Babylonians brought upon King Zedekiah. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. So that Zedekiah's last sight, the last thing he saw that became etched on his memory were the death of his own sons. Imagine that. The last thing you saw before your eyes were plucked out with a hot poker was the death of your sons. So that that, that was the sight etched into your memory forever. Now, Jeremiah 32 verse 4 predicted that Zedekiah would see the king of Babylon eye to eye. Whereas Ezekiel 12 verse 13 predicts that Zedekiah will come to Babylon but never see it. And on the surface, the two prophecies seem contradictory. But here here we find the, the resolution of the conflict. Zedekiah saw Nebuchadnezzar at his field headquarters in Riblah. That's where he was judged. That's where his eyes were plucked out. So when he arrives in Babylon, he is indeed blind. Both prophecies were fulfilled. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem. A month after the invasion, the city's now been searched, the city's been secured, and Nebuchadnezzar, he comes to oversee the dismantling of the city. Two days later, he burns down the walls. I'm sorry, he burns down the temple in Jerusalem two days after this. All the houses of the great he burned with fire, and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. And this dismantling of the walls ensured that the city would never be inhabited again. That was the purpose of the tearing down of the walls. Now tradition tells us that the temple was destroyed on the ninth day of the fifth month. And one of the great ironies of history is that later when the Romans invade Jerusalem in 70 A.D., they destroy the temple on the very same day as the Babylonians did. And so you can imagine the ninth day of the fifth month, or in Hebrew, Tisha B'Av, has become infamous, an infamous date on the Hebrew calendar. As a matter of fact, for the first nine days of the month of Av, the Jews neither eat meat nor do they bathe. They mourn the tragic event that shaped so much of their history, the destruction of their temple. And then on Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, they read Jeremiah's book of lamentation and they weep over their great loss. Tisha B'Av, or the ninth of Av, is a day of national mourning for the Jews. I believe that Jesus was born 
on Tisha B'Av, on the ninth of Av. On the day that the temple was destroyed, God established a new temple on the earth. But, but that's a whole other Bible study, so forgive me for throwing that out. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. Verses 13 through 17 list some of the temple treasures that were taken back to Babylon. Verses 18 and 19 list some of the temple officials that were taken back to Babylon. Verse 20, so Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah, his field headquarters. And then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. These leaders were executed there by Nebuchadnezzar. Then he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, governor over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left. These military captains, they come to Mizpah to pledge their support to Gedaliah. And in verse 24, And Gedaliah took an oath before them and their men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But it happened... In the seventh month, that Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck and killed Gedaliah, the, the Jews, as well as the Chaldeans who were with him in Mizpah. And all the people, small and great, and the captains of the armies arose and they went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. I mean, the Jews were afraid that the Babylonians would retaliate for them assassinating their governor. But what a sad outcome for the Hebrews. After 900 years of history, they are now right back where they started in Egypt. The consequences for failing to follow the Lord. Verse 27 now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. This is interesting. There's a tradition that tells us that during the reign of his father, Nebuchadnezzar, Prince Evil Merodach got into trouble. Don't know what happened. Maybe drove his Camaro into a telephone pole or something. I'm not sure. But he ended up in prison where he became friends with Jeconiah. After his release, he remembered his friend. And he freed him from prison and gave him an exalted place. And so Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. As for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king, a portion for each day all the days of his life. Which gives us a glimpse of what happened to many of the Jews in Babylon. They rose to positions of prominence. Daniel was the classic example. He was exalted to a high rank both among the Babylonians and among the Persians who would follow. Through God's providence, through their own prowess, they achieved rank within the society and they became functional citizens of the, uh, the land where they were in exile. Let me close our study tonight, our study on the kings of Israel and Judah in this period that we call the divided kingdom. Let me close our study with a poem by Lois Cheney. It's entitled, God is No Fool. And I think it will speak for itself. They say that God has infinite patience. And that is a great comfort. They say God is always there. And that is a deep satisfaction. They say that God will always take you back. And I get lazy in that certitude. They say that God never gives up. And I count on that. 
They say you can go away for years and years and he'll still be there waiting when you come back. They say you can make mistake after mistake and God will always forgive and forget. They say lots of things, people who never read the Old Testament. There comes a time, a definite for sure time, when God turns around. I don't believe God shed his skin when Christ brought the New Testament. Christ showed us a new side of God, and it is truly wonderful. But he didn't change God. God remains forever and ever. And that God is no fool.